0: If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. You can find that on page 958 of your pew Bibles. If you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. And if you are visiting us and I've not had the privilege to meet you, my name is John Sarver. I am one of the pastors here at NBC. Again, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 8 today. John 15. What does it mean to live? If somebody asks you to define life, how would you do it? I don't think it's quite as easy as it sounds. We could probably do it in a couple different ways. The first being more material. It might seem a bit more objective. How would you define life? If you looked at definitions, there's a kind of circular nature to them. Merriam-Webster, for example, Webster defines Life as the quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. Okay, so what's life? It's saying it's the thing that living things have that dead things don't. Or again, it defines life as an organism that is characterized by a capacity for growth and reproduction. Well, what's an organism? Again, it's defined as an individual constituted to carry on the activities of life. What's a living thing? What does it mean to have life? It's a thing that living things have that dead things don't. <laughs> life is no doubt easier to identify than define. A child can distinguish between a living bird from a dead one, a living plant from a dead one. Right? It might be hard to explain, but it's easy to spot. Like, why is my goldfish floating? We distinguish between Material life and death. And yet we understand there's also a qualitative aspect to life. As William Wallace cried before the Battle of Stirling Bridge, every man dies and not every man really lives. Among human creatures, right, you can do living organism stuff. You can eat and move and reproduce and yet somehow not really be or seem or feel alive. How do you measure really living then? Is it weighed in material wealth? Is it measured in intelligence? Is it marked by name recognition? Social media following? Is it held in degrees? Is it found in physical health? Is it family size? What does it mean to really live? When does material life become meaningful life? Maybe using the language of the Gospel of John, when does temporal life become eternal life? When do we not just live, but we have abundant life? Without a doubt, the chief concern of Christ in the Gospel of John is to reveal God so that he can give the gift of life to those who lack it. Jesus understands that many, if not most, are physically living and yet not really alive. He came to give us eternal life, abundant life, spiritual life, relationship with God life. So what is life? What does it mean to really live? When does it start? What does it lead to? How do we keep it? Could you identify it if you saw it? Things to keep in mind as we read the text. John chapter 15, beginning in verse one. If you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Verse one, this is Christ speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, simple, Jesus is and gives life. Jesus is and gives life. That is, he is life and he gives life, true and meaningful life, And as we'll see, it can be found in no other person or place but him. Jesus is and gives life. This morning we'll split the text and we'll consider two qualities of the life that Christ has and gives. First, Jesus offers true life. And second, Jesus offers fruitful life. Jesus offers true life and Jesus offers fruitful life. First, Jesus offers us true life. Now, it comes at no surprise to those of us who have been in the Gospel of John that Jesus aims to give us life. Something like 30 times so far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has promised life to those who would receive it by faith in him. John 3.16, the Father, of course, gives up the Son in love for the world that we might not perish but have life eternal in him. John 10.10, the whole reason that the Son came is so that we could have life and have it abundantly. John 6.63, Jesus tells us the Spirit is the one who gives life. The triune God, His aim is to give us life. Jesus comes from God to reveal God's inner life, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to extend a kind of share in that life. John 17.3, this is what it means to live, to have relationship with with God. The Son wants us to live, to really live. Now that might not come as a surprise thing is that he's the creator. What's surprising is how the Son gives us life. We live because of his death. We receive it as a gift by means of his merit. As Luther described, this wonderful exchange happens. We, the dead ones, we, deserving death, He, the living one, deserving life, and yet because of his cross and the empty tomb, we get what he deserves. He got what we deserved. Okay, it's surprising, but it's more surprising still. It's not simply that Christ died so we can live or that Christ gifts us what we don't deserve. It's how he does it all. Jesus unites himself to his people, first by becoming one of us, and then by putting his spirit inside of us. You see, by becoming man, Jesus clothed himself, God the Son clothed himself in us, and then he indwells us by means of the spirit, making our hearts his home. Our life, in fact, becomes so dependent upon Christ, it's so connected to his, that John fourteen nineteen, because he lives, we live. Our lives are so intertwined, in fact, that we're in him and he's in us as he's in the Father, John 14, 20. This is where we pick up in the conversation. Jesus is pressing into this idea of mutual indwelling, him and us, and us and him who's in the Father, and this idea of a life-giving union. Jesus is going to press in more deeply by means of a metaphor. You see, life can be difficult to define. It's easier to spot. And so Jesus gives us a picture, something that we would grasp more intuitively. We start in verse one. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus is the vine, the Father is the gardener. As we see in verses two through five, we are the branches. Now the vine metaphor would have been obvious to the disciples or familiar to them for a couple reasons. First, most obviously, they lived in an agrarian society. They're used to seeing vines. Probably most of them, if not all of them, grew up gardening to some extent. Not only that, they're en route right now to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're about to be looking at vines. So, vines are quite familiar to them from personal experience, but more significantly, through scripture, Jesus is picking up a repeated motif or type from the Old Testament to tell us who he is I am the true vine. Now, one of the ways we've made mention of this, one of the ways you can break up the gospel of John, at least the first half of the book, is to consider seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. These are moments of self-disclosure where Jesus is telling us about himself. Things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the last one. It's significant. I am the true vine. Why does Jesus call himself the true vine. Maybe you saw this week, authorities in New York City busted a storage facility and seized over $1 billion worth of counterfeit designer goods. We're talking fake shoes, sneakers, purses, coats, clothes, so on. Okay, if you're spending big money on an Hermes Birkin bag or a Rolex or some like Grail sneaker on the aftermarket, Okay, if you're spending, you know, hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands on one of these items on the aftermarket, what's the one question you're wondering? Is this real? Okay, you might use an app to identify it. You might have a person who's good at it. You distinguish fake merch from the real deal. You want the one that's going to help you in whatever way you think it's going to help you. (laughs) The fake one won't. When Jesus calls himself the true vine, he doesn't mean that he's the truth telling vine, though of course he is. He means he's the real deal. He's the authentic one. He's the vine. And in doing so, he's distinguishing himself from all other would be, all other counterfeit vines, all other would be sources of life. He's also saying something more specific, namely that he's come to fulfill the vineyard motif or type that we see in the Old Testament. There's a false mind. Jesus saying, I am the true one. I have come to complete its task to fulfill its role. If you want life, look to me. Now we've seen this quite a bit in the Gospel of John. Jesus points to something in Israel's history and says that this thing is being fulfilled and superseded by something better. Like the point of this is not this, it was a thing that's coming, it's me. I do what it did and better. Like the entire temple institution, we saw this. It gives way to a greater reality, which is Christ. We no longer have need for a temple sacrifice, why? The lamb who takes away the sins of the world has come. We no have longer need for Levitical priests, why? A priest of a better order has come. One who doesn't die, one who doesn't need sacrifice on his behalf, we no longer have need for a building to house the presence of God, why? Because in Christ Jesus, God himself has dwelt among us as one of us. And in Christ, not only that, he makes us part of the temple through his spirit. You see, the temple served a temporal purpose. It reminded Israel of God's presence and his absence. It served to instruct Israel about their sin and God's holiness. It was there to increase in them a desire for a greater lamb and priest. It looked beyond itself to a greater reality which is God becoming man. To live with and ultimately to die for his people so that we might live with and in him. The temple gives way to Christ and all those who are united to him. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Okay, we've seen it time and again. Jesus is the better lamb. He's the better shepherd. He's the better prophet. He's the better ladder to heaven, the better manna from heaven. He's the better light. Israel's history is like a series of shadows meaning to direct our gaze away from those things to Christ. He's the real deal. So what is the vineyard motif that Jesus is fulfilling? What is he superseding? It's Israel. Verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. In the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly described as the vineyard of God. We saw this in Isaiah chapter five, in our scripture reading, it's worth revisiting. I'll read it again. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. On a very fertile hill. Okay, it's planted in the best, the best place. He broke up the soil, cleared it of its stones, and planted it with the finest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. Okay, the gardener has done every possible thing that he could for this vine to succeed. This is why. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Verse four, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Uh, Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give order to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Of Israel and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in he expected justice but saw injustice he expected righteousness but heard cries of despair I think without exception every single reference to Israel as the vineyard of God in the Old Testament is tethered to a pronouncement of judgment every single time just a few examples we see this of course Isaiah 5 If you want to look at these later, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 15, Psalm 80, and Hosea chapter 10. Israel was intended to be the vine or vineyard of God. Now why this imagery? It's Edenic. It's like God was planting a vine, his people in what was meant to be like the new garden of Eden, Canaan. God tilled the soil, he set up walls, he watered it, he tended it, he gave it everything it needed to thrive. God expected good fruit, but he got worthless grapes. Okay, God gifted Israel with the holy land, the holy prophets, holy scripture, holy temple, and yet he got unholy fruit. And so in every single one of these texts, God brings covenant judgment on his old covenant people. You see, Israel had a job to do that mimicked Adam's job in the garden. They were set up to be like a priestly nation mediating the presence of God to the world. You should have been able to look at Israel and know that is what it looks like to be related to God. That, the way that they care for their widows and the sojourners and their slaves, why? And then you would go to their temple and see there's no idol in it. You would come to learn about the true and the living God. Israel's job was to mediate the presence of God to the world and yet they ended up being no different than the world. They gave God unrighteous fruit Israel is the vineyard so to speak that failed. There's this tension that builds as you're reading the and following the biblical narrative. God and his people they make these covenants, covenant promises with one another. God and Adam, God and Abraham, God and Israel, God and David and his sons. But every time without exception there's only one faithful party. It's God. But wrapped up in all these covenants or promises, That one day God would crush our enemy, that he would forgive our sins, that he would roll back the curse, that he would undo death, that he would bring blessings to the nation, that he would rule over us in his son. But what it requires is a faithful covenant partner, a second Adam, Abraham's offspring, a true Jew, a better son than David. But when you're reading through the Old Testament, it feels like, is this ever going to happen? How could we, humanity, possibly provide such a man. God provides such a man by becoming it. You see, the God of Israel became a man from Israel Israel to fulfill its job, namely, bringing blessing to the ends of the earth. We see this in Galatians chapter four, Paul writes, starting in verse seven, when the time came to completion. See, all of human history is moving towards this end. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. God becomes true vine so that in him we might become part of God's true vineyard so that in him we might live and actually produce the kind of fruit that pleases God. By claiming to be true vine, Jesus is claiming to be true Israel. Everything that she was intended to be and to do, but did not. Jesus is circumcised, but not only of the flesh, but of the heart. He was not just born under the law, he fulfills all of its demands. Living perfectly and yet being punished for those who are unrighteous. He crushes the head of the snake. He rollbacks the curse. He brings the blessing of Abraham to the ends of the earth. And he sits on the throne of David. Brothers and sisters, this is especially good news for us who are Gentiles. It means that because we have been united to Jesus, we are not on the outside looking in. We don't look at God's promises from afar. God brings us, them to us in Christ. Because Christ is true Israel, we become Abraham's children Galatians 3 7 you know then that it is those who have faith these are Abraham's sons the children of God and Abraham are those and only those who have faith in Jesus Christ because he and he alone is the true vine no one will be saved apart from him not by ethnicity or keeping of the law we can only be saved in Christ so the vine metaphor really has two purposes. First, given the Old Testament background, Jesus is claiming to be second Adam and true Israel. He's claiming to be, therefore, the only means by which we can be saved and join the people of God. He's drawing a circle around himself. If you want to live with God and his people, it comes by means of me only. Think about what a massive comfort this would have been to the disciples as they're about to see him drug off and hung by the false vine. Brothers and sisters, if you choose Christ, you choose right. Only in Christ can we get to the Father, and only in Christ can we be part of the people of God. Because Jesus Christ is true God and true man. He is God of Israel and Israel of God. And then the second purpose of the metaphor is really to explain how this works. Like, How does Jesus being true vine do anything for me? What is him being Abraham's offspring? How does that help me? Well, it's because we're united him in such a way that everything that is his flows to us. Because he lives, we live. Because he's Abraham's offspring, so are we. Jesus gives good gifts to us, but he doesn't do it from afar. He tethers us to him and him to us so closely that his things really and truly become ours. But We have to be engrafted onto him him and us and us and him. I quoted Calvin last week on this. It's worth repeating again because of how clearly it puts this. There's kind of a, can be a misconception as you think about justification that we are considered righteous and our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. That it sounds cold, transactional. The reality is, yes, it happens apart from us, but we can only receive it insofar as it comes into us. This is what Calvin is getting at. First, we must understand that As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. For this reason, he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren. We also, in turn, are said to be engrafted into him And to put on Christ. For as I have said all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true we obtain this by faith. The disciples at the departure of Christ are about to come face to face with serious temptation to abandon him as persecution is turned up. But as Jesus is telling them now to cut yourself off from him is to cut yourself off from God and his people. Brothers and sisters, we might not be tempted to go turn back to Judaism. We will be and are tempted to turn away from Christ. There is no life outside of him. There is no hope of forgiveness of sins apart from his cross. No chance of beating death apart from his resurrection. No future apart from his ascension. No paradise apart from his new creation. More than that there is no joy, no peace, no security, no goodness, no righteousness apart from it that flows from him. We must be united to him. If you're tempted to turn your back on Christ, know that to give him up is to give up life forever. Jesus alone can give true life because he is true God and true man. As God he has life in himself, but as strange as it sounds, as God alone, he can't give a spiritual life because we've sinned against him. We've cut ourselves off as true man. He secures the gift of that life for his people by living perfectly on our behalf and yet being punished for our sins. Jesus Christ as the true vine is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only means by which we can live, period. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you orient the whole of your life around him as though he alone can offer you satisfying and secure life? Do you share the gospel with other people as though the only means by which they can be saved is Jesus? Brothers and sisters, this is true. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, the only means by which we can live is Christ. Jesus in his kindness offers us true life, eternal life, secure life, satisfying life a life that is in some sense a share of the life of God he gives it to us Jesus also offers us a fruitful life Jesus offers us a fruitful life it's what you would expect when the life that you receive is a life that comes from God Jesus offers fruitful life we begin in verse two I promise to spend as much time on every single verse as I did on that last one most people laughed, but some of the visitors didn't. <laughs> every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Jesus introduces here more parts to the metaphor of branches and fruit. Now in our culture, our climate, we're probably less familiar with vines and more familiar with trees. The metaphor will work just as well if that helps you to think about it. With a tree, Jesus is like the roots and the trunk of a tree His people are the branches that then bear fruit. Okay, grapevine works very similarly. There's vine, there's a trunk, the branches, and then grape clusters. Now notice if you look at verse 2, look at how attentive the gardener is to the vine. He sees every single branch. And don't miss this. He expects, without exception, fruit. From every single one. Every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he will remove. He prunes every branch that does produce fruit so that it will produce more fruit. For some reason, it's so common in our culture to think that someone can be a Christian and yet not yield any fruit. We talk about people like, oh yeah, I think, you know, my mom or dad or cousin or friend or neighbor, I think they're Christian, and then disclaimer. Disclaimer as though it can be possible to be living on the vine and not producing fruit. The is looking for fruit from every branch because it is the evidence of life. The is looking for fruit from every branch. Don't miss this. Because of this, his pruning shears come to all. They come to everyone. As one commentator put it, if someone is not bearing fruit, they are cut off. If someone is bearing fruit, they are cut back. God removes the fruitless branches and makes the fruitful ones more fruitful. His shears come to all. Punishment to some, but pain still comes to the other. And no one is exempt. We have a lot of plants in our house. Jess is the gardener. I'm not the vine in this story. (laughs) I'm the innocent bystander. The one thing she does that makes me the most nervous is when she prunes our plants. It just feels so unnatural. Okay? She cuts off unhealthy and diseased leaves or branches and she prunes healthy ones. She cuts them back so they might be healthier. Okay, We have this Monstera vine, courtesy of Mamo. Yes. Uh, it was producing really weak leaves. Courtesy of Mamo. <laughs> you guys got to watch out. So Jess cut the entire top of it off. Imagine having a headache and your spouse is like, I have an idea. (laughs) She cut it back drastically. I didn't really want her to. I didn't tell her. And now it's exploding with new and healthy growth. Okay, it might seem counterintuitive, but you cut off death to protect life and you cut back life to produce more of it. I promise you both are painful. God, the gardener, intently considers all who claim to be Christians he perfectly knows every branch. He sees the fruit and lack thereof, and he brings his shears to all. How does he do this? How does he prune us? No doubt through experience, but we see especially there in verse three, you are already clean. There's a play on words here. This word's very similar to the word for pruning. It's as though Jesus is saying, you are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. How does God prune us? Most typically through his word. No doubt the word enlivens us, it comforts us, it brings us sweet promises from God, and it cuts us. Brothers and sisters, if the way you read your Bible and the kind of preaching you sit under never confronts or cuts you, God is not using it to prune you. It has an effect, no doubt it enlivens, it encourages, but God intends to use it to cut us back that we might bear more fruit. And those who don't bear fruit, we see, are actually cut off from Christ and his people. Verse two, again, every branch of me that does not produce fruit, he removes. Now to be crystal clear, God is not removing true Christians who just didn't make the cut. Like they were just a little JV. They weren't fast enough. The grapes were there, but they weren't big enough. no, God is removing those who prove themselves not to be Christians precisely because they did not bear fruit Precisely because they're not living in Christ. They were what we would call superficial professors. They were attached to Christ only externally. Sure, they maybe prayed a prayer. They said the right words. They were in the building among the people. But Jesus was not in them. They were not in him. And over their time, their conduct bore this out. So what does God do? We see it again in verse 6. Anyone who does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, this is a clear reference to Ezekiel chapter 15, where again, God is describing Israel as a vineyard. He's speaking about their usefulness at this point, because they bear no fruit, he says is one thing, it's fuel for the fire. Now, no doubt in a sense, this is probably true this is true of ethnic Israel, all those who rejected the Messiah. This is true today of all those who claim to be Christians but do not remain in him by faith it's sobering, but Jesus even in this moment is giving us the opportunity to survey our own lives. Friends, do you does your life bear Christian fruit? real sorrow over sin, repentance of that sin growth in Holiness, increasing affection for Jesus, a desire to be among his people. Do you love the things of God more today than you did the day you were converted? Jesus is not looking for perfect grapes. He's looking for living branches who live, not because of themselves, but because they are in Christ. He cuts off those who aren't. Notice God distinguishes between two different types of branches, Faithful churches do this very thing when they practice meaningful membership and discipline. Churches that are unwilling to distinguish between Christian and non-Christian, they actually hurt their discipleship. It becomes harder for the true branches to bear fruit with so many claiming to be Christians who are not. It confuses the whole. God in his kindness cuts off those who are only superficially attached to Christ for the benefit of the vineyard. Now that we're in the fall and the leaves are turning, it's a beautiful time to go on walks when it's not raining at least. One of the things now because the leaves are turning and they're starting, they're not as full, it's easy to spot which branches on the trees are healthy and which aren't. You can tell the healthy ones are in the trunk, they're receiving life and nourishment from the tree and it's easy to spot which ones are only superficially attached. They're barely hanging on. Like their leaves have already turned and they did long before the fall. Okay, if you care about the tree, if you care about your house that sits underneath it, you cut it off. I think where we're at in our culture, American Christian culture, we're in a changing of seasons. We moved from a time where Christianity was celebrated. We're kind of in between times where Christianity is tolerated and hated what that means though is it's easier to see which branches are on the tree which ones are only superficially attached which ones leaves have been dead for a long time brothers and sisters why have so many of our friends left the faith or the church in recent years it's not because God has forgotten us it's because he's mindful of us he cuts off those who only look like they're in Christ for the benefit of the rest. Is it painful? Of course. Think about how the disciples must have felt at Judas's betrayal. One who had been with them from the beginning, one who was named among them, numbered among them, one who ministered with them, who taught with them, but was he trusting in Jesus? No. And God knew this. And at the right time, he cut off the dead branch for the sake of the living ones. Which, by God's grace, led to more life, more fruit, more salvation. God, verse 6, cuts back the dead branches for the sake of the living ones. Friend, if verse 6 sounds like you, if you lack Christian fruit, it also describes what awaits you being cut off, withering, and being thrown into the fire. It's a metaphorical description of what eternally awaits all those who are outside of Christ, which can only be so horrible. It can liken to eternal flames. Okay, God's intent right now is not to be harsh to you. He's extending to you an invitation. He's showing you what you deserve by your sin, and yet what he has accomplished on your behalf in Christ. Now, if you are seeing verse 6 and you feel like you don't have any Christian fruit, the goal is to not start working hard to try to bear fruit. As we're about to see, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. The goal, what you should do, is empty-handed run to Jesus. It is to believe upon Him and His cross alone. It is to trust in Him for life alone. We would love to talk more about you with the gospel of Jesus Christ after the service. Any one of our members or pastors would be happy to talk to you about the good news that we believe in Christ. He is offering you, don't miss it, an invitation today to live in him. We see that God will cut off, he will punish all those who are only superficially attached and yet for those who live in Christ, he promises us that he'll prune us that we might be more fruitful. There's no other option One commentator summarizes it so well, there are only two options, fruitful or fruitless branches, remaining or being taken away, being one of Jesus' disciples or not. Which one are you? The only way to be a fruitful disciple of Jesus Christ is to be in him by faith and to remain in him by his grace. This is what we see in verse 4. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. We tried to up our gardening game this year. And we added tomatoes. (laughs) I know, impressive. (laughs) We basically just had a ton of chili peppers. We had herbs and one tomato plant. A very uh, modest urban mexican garden maybe next year we'll add cucumbers now our tomato plant started really slow It finally had one tomato and then some kind of bug ate it and then we had another tomato and it was doing really well we would just walk by we'd look at it we just kind of praise it for what it's doing we talk about the big plans we had for it for i don't know why this is actually jane's our two-year-old's plant we would be like jane that's your tomato you're gonna eat it one day we're gonna make something from this one tomato with these big plans well one day we look outside And Jane and Josie, they're playing with this. They're like dancing with tomato. They've picked it off the vine. They're like living out an episode of Bluey, probably, in the back. Chef Joe. Jess and I were shook, right? Small problem, big feelings. And now we immediately grasped what the girls did not. When they picked it, it immediately started to die. There can be no life outside the vine. The one place, the only one place for fruit and the branches to grow is on and in the vine. Part of what Jesus is showing us in this metaphor is just how dependent upon him we are for life. This is not just conversion. This is every second of every day. It's because he lives that we live. If some reason he died, which he couldn't, we would die. It's because he's fruitful that we're fruitful. It's because he loves that we can love. It's because he's righteous that we're righteous. It's because he's joyful and kind and self-controlled that we can experience any of those things in our lives. Apart from him, Jesus says we can do nothing. And he means it. Apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing spiritually good or pleasing to God, Period. It's not like we can do a little bit of good. It's not like we can muster a little bit of love. Like we can grit out some obedience apart from Christ. No. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. Left to ourselves, we are dead. Our desires are disordered. Our motives are monstrous. We never cease to need Jesus. We don't finish by works what was begun by faith. We don't finish by the flesh what was started by the Spirit. Apart from the vine, we're just a little branch lying on the ground. We're lifeless. Now Jesus goes on, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Okay, it's not just that apart from Christ we can't produce fruit it's that if we're in him, we must. Those who are in Christ, Jesus through them produces much fruit. The union between Christ and us, it's so real, it's so vital. His life is so powerful, it flows to us and it can't not. His life produces fruit in us and it can't not. When your phone is dying, you know, and you plug it in you feel that satisfying, quick vibration. If it doesn't, you know that there's something wrong. You basically got three options. There's an issue with an outlet, you might try something else, it works. There could be an issue with the cord, you try it on something else, it works. Or there's an issue with the phone. Okay, to say that you can be in Christ and not grow is to say that there's something wrong with the outlet. It's to say that there's something wrong with Jesus. That his life is so weak. His grace lacks power such that he can't produce life and fruit in you. It's to say that Jesus is really no different than ethnic Israel who produced worthless grapes. No, brothers and sisters, to be in Christ is to have life. It necessarily leads to fruit. It can't not happen. To say that it can is to say that Jesus is not a very good savior at all. Now Jesus calls us to do something. It's not passive in the same way that maybe you plug a phone into a wall. It's a gift of grace, something that we have by faith, and yet he calls us to do something. Seven times in eight verses, Jesus speaks about remaining or abiding in him. Verse four, remain in me and I in you. Verse 5, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he is thrown aside. We are to remain in Jesus even as he remains in us. Now, this word is hard. It's hard to grasp the whole concept in one word. That's why Jesus is giving us a metaphor. It kind of in an organic living way gives us a picture of what's going on the branch and the vines and the fruit, they all constitute one plant. They're connected in such a way that they share one life. But of course, it's a little different here. As Augustine notes, it's an asymmetrical relationship. We derive life from Christ, not him from us. You can cut off the branches and Jesus continues to live and produce more fruit. You cut us off and we are dead. And yet both of us are to abide or remain in each other. We live in him and from him. He lives from himself and yet he chooses to live in us. Okay, to remain is to continue to be in Christ who continues to be in us. We do this by faith. To remain is to persist in your relationship with Jesus even as he persists in his relationship with us. To remain is to be united with Jesus as he continues to be united to us. One way that you could think about it is living together. The kind of old English words we don't use very much, abode and abide, they get at this idea. In the new King James, it renders home in 1423, abode. The father and son, they come and they make their abode with us. And then the King James, verse one, it renders remaining abide. God makes his abode with us. We are to abide in him. You will abide in an abode, you live in a home. We are to dwell in, make our home in Jesus even as he himself is making his home in us. There is this mutual, ongoing living in each other even as we are the ones who are dependent upon him. Christian, the whole of your existence is to be marked by a constant dependence upon Christ. A constant living and being satisfied in obeying Jesus. Jesus is calling us to preserve in faith in Him. But again, like Calvin mentioned, we're not trusting something that's far from us. There's this organic, it's covenantal, it's spiritual, mystical, even we might say, it's hard for us to grasp in a word, so Jesus gives us a picture. We have to be like a branch living on Him who is the vine. We do this by grace through faith. And yet it fleshes itself out more practically. We see this in verses three, seven, and nine. Practically, how do we abide in Christ? Well, by faith, we hear from Jesus and we talk to Jesus. By faith, we hear from Jesus, we talk to Jesus. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. In verse 9, Jesus calls us to remain in his commands. In verse 3, we see that he prunes us through his words. We abide in Jesus and him in us when by grace through faith we hear from him and talk to him. It's strange to think that we could treat our relationship with Christ like we treat no other relationship. That we could have a vital, life-giving, intimate relationship with Jesus and not spend time with him. If we want to remain in Christ, verse 7, we have to put his word deep down in our hearts. We have to put ourselves in position to hear from his word so that it might get deep down in our hearts. That we might understand it and keep it and verse 9, obey it. We abide in Jesus when we know what he's actually like and about and what he asks from us and in faith we respond because we love him. Notice he speaks to us, he puts his word in us and then he expects us to speak back. Verse seven, ask whatever you want and it will be given for you. Notice the more fruitful that our actions become, the more fruitful our prayers become. Why is this? I think what Jesus is saying is that the more we abide in him, the more we become like him. The more we seek him for wisdom, the more we delight in his word, the more we habitually obey him, the more his word is in us, the more it comes out of us as we pray. We start to know and delight and want the things that God wants. And so we pray for things like our sin that it would be put to death. We pray for growth and holiness. We pray for the salvation of coworkers. We pray for opportunities to serve our neighbors. We pray for Christians who are suffering around the world. We pray for more pastors and missionaries. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more we start to talk like Jesus. This is the goal. We want to hear from him such that his words start naturally coming forth in prayer. You realize prayers where you put you put to words the things that you most desire. What does somebody want? Ask about their prayer life. Jesus wants our lives to be so entwined and connected with his, we're so dependent upon him, that when we speak about the things that we want most, God says yes. It's what Jesus wants most. The more we abide in him, the more our desires start to match, and guess what? God gladly answers them. Why? Verse eight. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The more we abide in Jesus by faith, the more we put his word in us, the more we respond in prayer, the more we're asking him to prune us, the Father happily gets to work in the garden. And it all resounds to the glory of God. If the story of redemption is one marked by human failure after human failure after human failure, from Adam to David's sons to exile. God's people, they couldn't produce the kind of fruit that the law required. Israel was the loved vine that produced thorn and thistle and yet God was always at work moving redemptive history to a point where he would send his son for us. True Adam and true Israel. Here's what happens when God unites us to the true vine, he shares his life with us. A life that's so powerful, it bears the kind of fruit that God has been wanting to see for all of human history. Again, and it happens in such a way that it doesn't lead to our glory, but to God's. The dead branches, they gain life. For the first time, we produce fruit, and this can only lead to the glory of God. God gives us life in Christ. He produces fruit in us through Christ. He does so in such a way that only he can get the glory. Amen. Amen. Who else could have done what he has done? This is why we're about to sing in a moment. This, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. When my race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your...